everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and I am joined here again today by the wonderful Journey and Nicole. This week, Nicole will be educating us on what happens to bones when they get burnt, and also telling us about Anthony Kirkland, who burnt his victims. Journey is then going to be giving us an update on a pretty well-known case that we haven't covered yet, but it's still relevant to our previous topics we've covered. Before we get started, I would like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are brief descriptions of sexual assault. And just before we get started, I'm sorry if you hear my cat yelling at me. It's (laughs) supper time. With that being said, let's get into this exciting episode. Um, Hi, Ophie, just by the way. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I'll get started with uh, Anthony Kirkland. He was born on September 13th, 1968, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of information that is out in the world about his upbringing, about his childhood. Um, I think he was born in Cincinnati, but I'm not 100% sure on that, and there's not a lot of information on what his family life was like, but apparently his lawyers do argue that he was physically and mentally abused as a child. Um, It wasn't until he came under police spotlight at the age of 18 on May 29th, 1987, when he murdered his girlfriend, Leola Douglas, um, when she refused to have sex with him. According to some sources, um, he had sexually assaulted her, poured lighter fluid over her, then set her on fire while she was still alive. Wow. And... This, unfortunately, was confirmed. At least the the last end of that was confirmed through the autopsy report, which did indicate that she was unfortunately alive at the time of burning. That's terrible. Yeah. So I really hope she was not conscious and didn't experience any of it. But yes, so she unfortunately passed away in this horrific manner. And her body was found on literally the front steps of his house. So it didn't take him long to become suspect number one and not a very great spot to burn your victim. I will say. No, like if you don't want to get caught for the crime, maybe don't leave evidence of it. Like on your front steps, maybe very staggering evidence too. You can't really hide a burnt body. Well, you can't be like, that was, there by accident i didn't do <laughs> yeah. that someone oh, actually <laughs> had a bonfire on my front yard or my front porch yeah. don't know how yeah, she's only my ex-girlfriend like yeah. what oh my it was gosh. just spontaneous combustion it, it's so common <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah. she just came over and saw me and i'm so hot and she just burst into flames like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous case closed end of story yeah. But after this incident, Anthony Kirkland did plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter. So he pled to the lesser charge that he faced. Um, And he was sentenced to 16 years in prison, which he served in full and was later released in 2003. His parole period ended in 2004, though, meaning that he somehow only served one year of parole. I don't know if this is standard. I don't know other cases that I could name that this happened. Yeah. Um, Well, that was a question I had too, because it's like that feels like a very short parole time, I guess, for yeah. someone who did kill someone. And I also don't understand 
why like i'm assuming that he could just got a deal for less time for voluntary manslaughter if he pled guilty Mm -hmm. but he had the option to go to trial for like first Mm -hmm. or second degree murder from my understanding yeah and he could have faced more years than 16 but yeah i guess i just didn't really understand like the difference between voluntary manslaughter and a degree Mm -hmm. of murder yes so i was like hmm i don't know (laughs) When it comes to murder, I think, like, first is premeditation, mm-hmm. second degree. Isn't second degree manslaughter, or is manslaughter, like, an accident, basically? Manslaughter is an accident, but second degree is when you don't mean to kill someone. So, okay. So I don't know the difference between <laughs> the two. <laughs> I think manslaughter would be, like, if you hit someone with a car. You didn't yeah, mean you're like to kill making them. a right turn. Someone's walking by, you nail them. Yeah, but maybe if you like accidentally give someone food poisoning, maybe like, second degree then would be if you're in a car, you see someone you don't like, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I really don't like this person, and drive them over. Yeah, yeah. I looked it up, and it you're you're basically right. It's when it says when someone's acting recklessly and they're aware of their potentially mm. fatal actions. Okay. So yeah. it's okay, okay. it's an accident. Still bad, but how do you? You'd have to prove intention. Yeah, but like burning a human, that doesn't Ew. seem like an accident to me. <laughs> no, and the lighter fluid is fairly deliberate. Seems pretty, maybe not premeditated, but yes, very deliberate in the yeah. sense of you have an intention of burning this person. You are intending to kill this person. Yeah. So then is third degree murder, because that's a thing, right? I think third degree is manslaughter, is it not? This is a whole. Oh, I just I know that manslaughter is somehow different, but I've never been aware of what the difference is between the four of those things. I'll tell you, I heard it in class once. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna Google this. What's third degree murders? This is unintentionally causing someone to die while doing something dangerous. Oh, oh no! You're right. Manslaughter is also known as third degree murder. Okay. Okay, okay. Yeah. interesting. Because it contains, it does not contain malice. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay, yeah. So he <laughs> back to the the, the story. Yeah, um, that was quite a tangent. It got a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> That's okay. Um. So yeah, he served a year of parole. We don't really know why, but he did. While he was in prison, he received his GED and associate's degree. He was also placed in solitary confinement. Uh, numerous times, about 21, um, if we want a number. And this was between 1998 and 2003 for disciplinary control. And within his last nine months in prison, he was sent to solitary four times for breaking the rules and or fighting other inmates. Sounds like a fun guy. And initially, um, he was denied parole because of his crime, but there was a ruling by the Ohio Supreme Court that said, quote, parole eligible inmates had to be judged for their, con- or sorry, had to be judged by their conviction and not just the crime, end quote. So this is why he was ultimately released after his 16 years. He got his one year um, parole. And I don't know, though, there can, I guess his conviction was manslaughter and not burning a human alive but yeah. i can understand <laughs> i can get the difference there yeah um and i do want to preface before i get into victims and dates and ages there was a bit of discrepancies among sources so a few of the dates and ages of the victims vary um i'll give kind of both but 
just know nothing's really set in stone um, with that. But on that note, in January of 2005, um, Kirkland was accused of sexually assaulting a neighbor at knife point, uh, but then was later acquitted of the charges. So really good start after being released. And then in May of 2006, he had killed Cassania Crawford, who was 14 or 15 at the time. She had just left her grandmother's house when she had ran into Kirkland. They struck up a conversation and he offered her $20 to have sex with him. She so said gross. no. Yeah, she said no, as I think many 14, 15-year-olds or anyone really would. Mm-hmm. Um, so he offered her $60, to which she refused again. Um, <laughs> I would too. I don't know mm-hmm. about you yeah. guys. Because <laughs> he's 36 at this time. Yeah. Yeah. And she's no, 14 or 15. Yeah. Um, at this, at her second refusal, Kirkland flew into a fit of rage and then choked her until she went limp and then ultimately burned her body as well. And you'll come to learn, as this episode describes, um, we will be talking about burnt, burnt remains. So he, that was kind of his signature, I guess, was trying to hide evidence through burning the, burning their bones. Um, but her remains were found on May 11th of 2006 in Avondale. And this is a neighborhood in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the reason I think he's from Cincinnati is because of the area in which these crimes took place. Um, and then a couple of the sources I found through like the Ohio court systems said a Cincinnati man, Cincinnati gentleman. So oh, okay. I would assume he's he's from Cincinnati. Um but there's no like explicit thing that says he was born here in Cincinnati in Cincinnati. Is that even a word now? Cincinnati? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we're just going to go say, we're going to say that he's from that place. Also, I did is- my math wrong. He's 38 now, not 36. 38. That's okay. Give or take a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> um. On June 14th, 2006, he had run into Mary Jo Newton, who was 45 at the time, and they had struck up a conversation, and this ultimately led to him getting, or sorry, to her getting into his van. Um, I don't know what type of van he had, probably one of those creepy no-window vans, one would just assume. Um, They had gone to a park called Eden Park, and he started to get violent with her. She tried to leave the van, but he had chased her and brought her back in, where he then choked her. On June 16th, 2006, police found the burned remains of Mary Jo Newton behind a vacant building in Avondale. So, I don't know the exact circumstances, but I would assume that he had strangled her to death. There's a common theme seen throughout the victim, sorry, where he strangled them and or stabbed them and then burnt them. Um, And I don't know if all of these victims were still alive when they died, like um, the first girlfriend, or if they had already passed before being set on fire. Yeah. I would hope the latter. Me too. Some sources say that Newton was killed around April or May of 2006, though. Um But either way, it was within the first half of 2006 that she was killed. In December of 2006, though, on December 22nd, 25-year-old Kimya Rawlinson was killed. Um, He again struck up a conversation with her. 
she, like Mary Jo Newton, agreed to get into his van. And he, I guess he had, he had told her or he told like police during an interview that he had just recently been robbed. So he was like super angry um, before and during picking her up, which led to his aggressions towards her or contributed to her aggressions. When she was in the van, he pulled out a knife and stabbed her in the neck. He took her body into the woods and then later burned it. And her body wasn't found for months until a dog had actually found her femur and she was then later identified um, from this discovery. Um, Him stabbing her in the neck reminds me of when we went to court and we heard that guy give his testimony about how he was hired to just poke her in the neck and that meant like stabber really Do you remember I that? don't remember that at all i remember sitting physically sitting in court but i don't remember like any conversation or any testimony that happened it was a core memory for me wow it, like so scary because he was just like so nonchalantly it was just like yeah, yeah like he just like and then i just had to like poke her like with a knife stabber yeah to take her life okay <laughs> <laughs> i was like Oh my god, you've seen my face. I'm I'm here. I've seen your face. Am I next? And I just panicked. So when I heard that he did this kind of the same thing, I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, it's scary. Just just a little poke. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I forgot we did that. We we I should go sit in on court again. That was fun. Mm-hmm. Not fun because it you know what I mean. You know the level of fun that we're talking about. There's yeah. <laughs> there's levels. Yep. Um But yes, so on May 14th, 2007 now, he then, Anthony Kirkland, threatens to kill his 18-month-old son. He was in a SWAT standoff with them. I'm not quite sure what led to the standoff. Yeah. But there was a standoff. SWAT got involved. He threatened to kill him, the son. And then he was convicted three months later of two counts of unlawful restraint, and was sentenced to 115 days in jail. It just seems so, like, swept under the rug. It was like, yeah, he was just yeah. in a SWAT standoff, yeah. but they don't mention anything more about it. Yeah. Yeah, like, I'm wondering, did did the police know at this point, like, during the SWAT standoff, that he had murdered these other women? Or is this just kind of happening in the background? Like, this is a whole other thing. This is just a whole other thing. Like, he, they know... I mean, if they did the research, hopefully they would know that he had been to jail for that previous murder already. But the two murders that just happened, I feel like they haven't connected any of it yet. Um, oh, wow. Oh. And then yeah, the standoff. Yeah. He is mm-hmm. way too involved with the police. Way yeah, too right. involved. Like, just hide a little bit, buddy. Like, why are you causing yeah, this Yeah, like, that's just insane. Just wrong place, wrong time, I guess. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, he served his 115 days. Shortly after his release, Reverend Walter Bledsoe, um, he got a restraining order against Kirkland on behalf of his family, of the Bledsoe family. And no one knows why. And even court records don't say why he applied for the order. It was just that they got this restraining order. It was granted by a judge. And then December 2007 is when it kind of started. Wild that court won't even be like, it was for XYZ. Maybe the only thing I could think of is like a publication ban, maybe something having to do with a child. I don't know if they had children, but that would be the only thing that would make sense in my brain. And yeah, unless they like adopted his son or something. I don't know. Like it's just so odd. Yeah. Yeah. 
So many, yeah, so many options. Um, if anyone knows why, let us know. I'm curious. Yeah. Um, but yes, on September 26th now of 2007, this guy's so grimy. He attempted to solicit sex from his girlfriend's 13-year-old daughter. Gross. Um, and then he was convicted in March of 2008 for imp importuning i believe it's pronounced and this is basically the persistent harassment of someone um for or to do something so Gross, that he okay. was charged with harassment essentially and not soliciting sex from a 13 year old but yeah no doubt tomato tomato um he was sentenced in one year in prison for this and then had to register as a sex offender and then alongside this he had to register his address with the sheriff's office um, this may not seem like a really important piece, but it comes back into play um, later on. Jump forward about a month, no, a year and a month. On October 20th of 2008, he was released from prison, entered a halfway house called the Pog, Pog, Pogu? Pog <laughs> Rehabilitation Center. I just said Pog. I guess it could be Pogue, but Pogue? I just said Pog. We'll say Pog. P-O-G-U-E. And then about a, uh, a couple months later, half a year later, February 27th of 2009, Kirkland got into a fight with another resident at this halfway house. This resulted in him being thrown out of the residence because of their no fight policy that they had. And during this altercation, police had been called, but the other resident actually refused to press charges. Um, so Kirkland didn't end up being arrested for this. The halfway house, though, didn't notify his parole officer about this change of address or about the altercation that happened until two days later. Um, and I guess because it was the weekend and they just they don't inform, inform that them on the weekend. Gotta get the I feel like off. you have like a high profile, like or high <laughs> risk offender <laughs> as you're like parolee. You might mm -hmm. want to be open to working weekends. Yeah, just maybe. Like, bare minimum. <laughs> yeah, crime is not like a Monday to Friday, nine to five kind of gig. Like, literally, it does happen outside of business hours. Yeah. <laughs> just put like, your phone primarily. on, like, yeah. Put your phone yeah. on the ringer, you know, just answer it yeah. once in a while. It's so aggravating. Um, but yeah, so they waited two days and then uh, Kirkland also didn't immediately register with his parole officer that he was no longer at the halfway house or sorry, with the sheriff um, to let them know that he had changed addresses. And so he was just kind of roaming the streets at this point. Um, so then on March 1st, 2009, Kirkland is then yeah. accused of breaking into a house, hiding in a bathroom and then stabbing a gentleman named Frederick Hughes with scissors I don't know their connection, don't know why or if he was just seeking a thrill. Hughes actually survives at least stab 10 stab wounds, um, but Kirkland does manage to flee the scene, and a warrant is issued for his arrest on charges of aggravated burglary and felonious assault. So just assault. Seems like a name, felonious. I, it's kind um, of fancy. A little bit fancy, yeah. Like, instead feel... of just, like, regular assault, it's felonious assault? Felonious. I would have... I th originally thought it was, like, felonious, too. Like, that's how I would initially have pronounced it, but it seems... Oh, yeah. Um, like, much more sophisticated. Yeah, very much so. Felonious. 
Um, watch us not be pronouncing that right at all, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, the next day, March 2nd, 2009, his parole officer is finally notified that he was kicked out of the halfway house. And so he begins looking for Kirkland. Two days later, March 4th, a second arrest warrant was issued um, because of him failing to register his address after being kicked out of this house. So it was kind of a, a snowball effect with this. On March 5th, the next day, he was accused of threatening a Roberta Baldwin, which is his child's mother, his 18, well, older than 18 months old son now, but um, his child's mother with a knife. He flees another arrest is issued or another arrest warrant, excuse me, is issued. And this one for domestic violence, aggravated, aggravated menacing and violation of a protection order. Something is so about, scary to me. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say they've got fancy charges in Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they do. Like just aggravated menacing. Yeah. I know that actually is like a bad thing, but every time I think of something being menacing, I just think of like a cartoon villain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know it still happens like a lot, like people with arrest warrants go missing because they're on the run because they know they're wanted. But I just think it's really scary that like he was on parole and like, shouldn't you have more eyes on you? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I know he's on parole and he's a high risk parolee. So why doesn't he have an ankle bracelet or something like that? Yeah, yeah, it's just so much wrong. Yep. On March 7th or 8th of 2009, 13-year-old Esme Kenny went for a jog near her house in Winton Hills. And about a half hour later, her parents called the police since um, she hadn't returned home yet. And it was a bit of out of character for her to be this late um, returning home. So the police began a search for her. According to Kirkland, I assume upon his arrest and um, interrogation, Esme had bumped into him while jogging. She tried to apologize, but then this led to him becoming irrationally angry. And so he started physically assaulting her. He then proceeded to sexually assault her, strangle her, and then attempted to set her remains on fire. At 11.30 p.m. that evening, police find Kirkland, or the police found Kirkland sleeping against a tree in the woods near her house. And some of her artifacts or belongings were found in his pocket. So they had actually found a watch and an iPod um, belonging to Esme in his pocket. And on March 9th, the police then find Esme's body in the woods, only about 100 yards from where they found Kirkland sleeping against the tree. Wow. So They didn't look very hard. No, that's my first thought, too. Because she was strangled and then the lower part of her body had been burned to try and get rid of the sexual assault evidence. Um, But I feel like a half-burnt child or teen would be noticeable. Unless it's like heavy, heavy growth forests that maybe they didn't notice anything, but... Well, I feel like you'd smell it too. Yeah. Because it didn't happen that long ago. No. Because, yeah, what they found her, like, they found her early in the morning. like two Yeah, it was at, like, something. 3 a.m. or something like that. Yeah. So, she'd only maybe just stopped burning. Yeah. Like, yeah, because they had found him at 11.30 p.m. So, not mm-hmm. even five hours. And they found yeah, her exactly. body. So, I think they just need to invest in better police officers. But, that's besides the point. So, yes, police arrest Kirkland and charge him with 
her murder. He apparently admitted to murdering Esme as well as Cassania. And through their investigation, Kirkland was also connected to the murders of Mary Jo and Kimya. And his bond was um, held for over $5 million, which is quite a lot of money, I will say. They finally decided, like, hey, we don't want him on the streets. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he should not be allowed back on the streets. Right. Um, So Kirkland entered a guilty plea to all charges when he went to trial. And the jury found him guilty on the four counts of murder in addition to the abuse of a corpse in March of 2010. Kirkland was sentenced to death for the murders of Esme and Cassania, the two teenagers. Mm, yes, the two teenagers? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Kirkland was, was yeah, the youngest of the four. Um, but he was also charged or sentenced with 70 years to life for the murders of Kimya and Mary Jo. Kirkland's legal team had filed for a number of appeals, and in May of 2014, his conviction and death sentence was upheld, But in October of 2014, the Supreme Court of Ohio did grant a motion for a stay of execution. Um, Later on, 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear his appeal. Um, But as of May 2016, the Supreme Court of Ohio granted a motion for a new sentencing hearing, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. And then in August of 2020, though, the Ohio Supreme Court affirmed the death sentence imposed um, so basically they said, F you, you're sticking with the death sentence yeah, because yeah. of, yeah, the murders of the two teens. And then the Supreme Court, um, of Ohio, there was a majority rejection of like Anthony or Kirkland was very adamant on getting across that he was improperly sentenced to death, that he should have been sentenced to life in prison. And that was just a wrongdoing by being sentenced to death. But a majority in the Supreme Court said, nope, you are wrong on that. So, yeah. He's well, like quite the roller coaster of yeah. like appeals and, oh, life sentence. Actually, never mind. Death sentence. Actually, no, never mind. Life. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> like, that is <laughs> yeah. way too complicated. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and like literally life in prison is literally just a death sentence. They just mm-hmm. don't kill you because you're on death row for much longer than you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's because he's crazy. still there. Yeah, he's still still hanging and out there. He's been in prison for thirteen years. Like, but anyways, that is Anthony Kirkland. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Nicole, for telling us about Anthony Kirkland. Um, and I know you're really excited to talk about this because you did a whole project on this in university. I did. Um, so, would you now? also care to lead our discussion (laughs) on uh burnt bones yeah i would love to i have a very strange fascination with burnt bones i will say and in a scientific manner and i'm also apologizing to our listeners because this is a whole long episode of just me talking so hopefully you love my voice (laughs) (laughs) because we've got more to cover um but I I kind of went broad to then talk about the effects of fire on bone. Um, just to kind of help you visualize it, I guess, before I start. But when you're looking at kind of the wide range of cases that anthropologists can undertake or any sort of forensic investigative 
person to undertake. Um, the presence of burnt bones isn't really that uncommon as burning as we could see with Anthony Kirkland. Um, it's said to be a favored manner of disposing victims' bodies because perpetrators often like to believe that it's like the number one way of destroying evidence. And we see it a lot in media as well, um, where the victims will be burned in an attempt to impair identification or to destroy evidence, any of that. And like, while yes, it does destroy physical evidence, um, there's a lot more that kind of goes into it. And with this being said, fire is arguably one of the most destructive factors when looking at like a forensic lens or looking through a forensic lens because of the damage and the erasure that it can cause to evidence. And depending on how burnt skeletal remains are, this will ultimately affect how easily they are to examine, which makes sense. The more burnt you have, the harder it is to identify. Yeah. And charred remains aren't really a huge issue for experts experts, excuse me, since serology and visual identification can still be completed most of the time. And so like charred is kind of the initial level of burning, like not really burnt. You still have the bone. It's just was kind of in the fire for a little bit. It's when investigators are left with incomplete cremated remains. And so these are remains that are pretty well turned to ash. So think of like a crematorium, like you are cremating your remains, you are incinerating them. These are the most difficult to work with. And this is because the duration and the heat levels can cause discoloration. They can cause shrinking, warping, cracking, splitting, and a whole bunch of other um, different distortions. Well, especially when you think of like a body actually being cremated, like there's just ash left over. And so yeah. if you do have a body that has been cremated and you're trying to identify it, like you have to identify it from these little tiny shards of bone, which yeah. I can imagine how difficult that is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cause the thing with cremating cremation too, is it doesn't like, you don't get all of the bone turned mm-hmm. into ash. So they'll actually like pulverize the bone. Like if you send a loved one to be cremated, they like blender. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> terrifying thought. I hated that. <laughs> the okay. Well, you know what? Like you get chunks of your blood. Well, yeah, you don't want to be like when you're spreading their ashes, have it be chunky, right? Like you get like their piece of their mandible. Yeah, but, right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I just didn't appreciate the visual of pulverizing <laughs> a loved one. Do you like my Nutribullet effect yeah. too? Hand motion. Oh, I didn't know that's what you were doing. <laughs> Gross. Yeah, just a little Nutribullet action. Not an ad. Nutribullet, though, if you want to sponsor <laughs> us. <laughs> and they probably never will now. <laughs> a piece to different audiences, okay? Um, but yeah, cremated remains, harder to identify. Um... This means that effects of heat and fire on bone, as you can guess, can obscure estimations of sex, age, stature, race, and pretty well any other variable you can think of, making them difficult to determine. And so burnt remains also pose the difficulty of identifying trauma that happened before death, which is also known as perimortem trauma, um, as this trauma can be masked by the burning process. And so a study that was conducted in 2021 had actually looked at the detection of like dismemberment related tool marks in cremated cadavers. So basically they just had a whole bunch of cadavers sawed at them a little bit, got did their thing with all of these um, sharp force traumas, 
or sharp force instruments. Um, and then they burnt them. So they had inflicted 55 sharp force trauma injuries to embalmed ca- cadavers. They then burnt them and then examined the bones after. And the researchers of the study found only seven tool marks were able to be identified after burning out of the 55. Right? Briefly aside from, like, just how little um, tools could be identified, because that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine how weird that job must be? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Like, being a researcher at a cadaver farm I don't know. It's just like, that's one of the most like gruesome jobs I think exist. Well, it reminds me, speaking of sharp force trauma, what the program or the study that Dr. Tice just did with the blood spatter analyst, I saw Mm -hmm. pictures on their Instagram of them just like wailing away with an ax to these bones. Yeah. It looks so cool because I think they had frozen them, right? Yeah. Yeah. They looked frozen. Yeah. So next week we talked to a forensic anthropologist who we're talking about now. And if you check on her Instagram, she has pictures that she did with a blood spatter analysis as well. Yeah. At Suncoast Forensics. Mm -hmm. It looks like a, like I would love to do a science project like that (laughs) same (laughs) right (laughs) anyways um so yeah that was a little study just to kind of show that fire is powerful um and there are three general phases that bones will go through when exposed to heat and it's important to note though that these phases aren't independent of each other um or discrete so each bone could be going through different phases at different times depending on the factors at play so the first phase this is when temperatures reach about 100 to 500 degrees celsius this is when the bone begins to lose water and as fluid is lost shrinkage in both the length and width of the bone occurs and as temperatures then rise and hit about 500 to 600 degrees the bone begins to lose collagen and so this is the bone's primary organic material and this in addition to the loss of water, will reduce its overall weight. And during these first two phases, there's also an increase an increase in bone porosity, and this makes the bone more fragile and susceptible to fracturing, fragmentation, and breaking. And another research actually has shown has shown that when the bone dehydrates and loses its collagen, its plasticity and then its plastic reaction decreases. So this means that as more stress is placed onto the bone, it's going to become more brittle, which kind right. of like you can kind of make sense with that with the fire. Um, yeah. I always think of like if you burn a piece of wood, the longer it's in the fire and the drier it gets, it just kind of crumbles beneath you. Yeah. So kind of the same concept with bone. Um, but essentially during phase one and two, the bone's resistance to this elastic deformation decreases in addition to a decrease in the bone strength. So it's just not, I mean, fire's not going to be great for bone, but this is like where it starts to not be great. And so the density, structural integrity, and stress and strain relationship is ultimately changed. So this just causes a greater likelihood of fracturing um, with the bone. In the last phase, generally between 700 to 1200 degrees Celsius, is when components within the bone begin to disappear. Um, So this is like magnesium, that kind of stuff. Um, There's also, when you look 
in the bone and like the histological components and just the structure of it, there's like a crystal lattice work that is present in bone. And so these crystal lattice work structures actually begin to melt and like fuse together, which is pretty cool. And it reorganizes the overall mineral structure of the bone, which I thought was really fascinating. That's so cool. It's so cool. Um, Just for like more visualizing mm-hmm. um when you say crystal structure that's like that's the part of the inside of the bone it almost looks like really really tiny like honeycombs or like sponge right yeah it's so just like on like, a microscopic level it's on a microscopic level so okay. i'll and i kind of talk about it too but like when you look at a bone you've got the cortical bone which is the outside hard bone and then that spongy bone in the middle is like the trabecular bone so that's the co- honeycomb like spongy okay type bone. yeah and then okay, like gotcha. within the bone though, so kind of on a more microscopic level, that's where you get that crystal structure. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, so this reorganization of the crystal structure leads to further shrinkage and reduced porosity. And then this ultimately affects the bone's potential to pressure. So here at this stage two, once you reach this higher temperature, the bone look can actually change into a more like ceramic fine china like structure and so this is called calcined bone and so this type of bone which is considered the most burnt type of bone has shown to be more fragile than unburnt and charred bone since it's a great um since a great deal of collagen and water has been lost basically and um i don't know like it's basically white bone. Like when you think of burning a bone or burning wood, we'll talk about wood. If you burn wood, it goes through the phases of like getting really dark, turning into like coal. And then after it's been burning for a while, it kind of is like gray and white. If like, I don't know if you guys yeah, can like the color that. of ash. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll, you'll see that in the bone, but the bone is still whole. So I assume Wild. though, if you were to like touch it it could crumble because it's very very brittle but you have that like chalky china fine china like bone structure well it's so fascinating mm-hmm. yeah even bones just as a whole like they're not as white as they are on tv because mm-hmm. i know when people like think of like like the tv show bones yeah they're like oh a skeleton is like perfectly white that's actually yeah. not true it's like bleach bone at that point exactly yeah you usually find that with sun bleach but then they're also super brittle so yeah 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 and i'll talk about color um transformation a little bit too just keep that in mind but each of these phases phases can vary depending on a whole bunch of other factors which you'll kind of come to realize with burning bones is a lot can happen and a lot of factors affect other factors. So this makes examining them all that much more difficult because you have to consider all of these things. Um, Like for example, in circumstances where advanced decomp has occurred to a body before being burned, um, this absence of a periosteum, it's called, this is the membrane of blood vessels and nerves that wraps around the majority of your bone. In the absence of this membrane, this can allow for tissue to burn away with a lot less resistance, resulting in an accelerated burning um, of that area. So say like you had advanced decomp in certain areas of your body, that would burn faster than other areas. Right. So even just like physical differences can cause different accelerated burning patterns. 
um, any perimortem trauma that's caused an, any sort of like open wound, this can affect how bones are burnt. Um, accelerated exposure will be present, and this results in the burning of organic components to happen faster. And because of this, color changes can be seen in the bones. Um, so you'll see a bit of a color change in those um, open wound regions, and they'll be slightly different from areas that weren't affected as well. So that can kind of help you determine if something happened um, before death, during death, um, and I guess how the fire affected different things. I don't know. Fire is so, what's the word? Like un, unver no, was unpredictable. Yeah, unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> unpredictable. And you can just, it just fucks everything up. <laughs> well, especially because like, if you're burning over like an open wood fire, right? Like you can't keep the same heat. Yeah. But if you're in, like, a crematorium, there's ways to control how hot it is, like, where the yeah. body's being burnt. So even that can affect what happens. Exactly. Um, another thing that I thought was kind of interesting is that another issue that can impact how bones react to heat is um, how decomposed, I guess it is. But the study in the article that I read described the body as being fleshed defleshed but green or defleshed and dry <laughs> i love defleshed but green do, do you want to take a guess at what that means like is it green in color no think of like a green tree like you know when it's like a young oh, tree st yeah still kind a little of? wet yeah. yeah, so it That's means a great like way to describe that case. Yeah, do they have all of their skin? Are they decomposed in a way that there's no skin, but they still got some wet bone, or are they decomposed completely and their skeleton is dry? Just skeleton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then body fat is another thing that can affect how your body burns. How close you are to the heat source can affect how your body burns. So. Some bones will burn at higher intensities if fat is present, since it acts as a fuel source. Um, also, the closer you are to a heat source, the kind of the hotter it's going to be, the greater effects that you'll see on the bone. And another interesting thing that I read was that the more distal bones of your hands and feet, so these are like the furthest bones from your midline core, um they won't be burned with such an to such a high intensity compared to those near the center of your body where more fat is located. So since That's there's very less interesting. Mm -hmm. That kind of reminds me, it's really slightly off topic, but I was reading something about human um spontaneous combustion, which I also mentioned earlier. I don't know why it's just on my <laughs> mind. Um but I was reading one of the theories for why it happens is often in people who are a little bit overweight so have more fat on them mm -hmm. and who might have been either alcoholic in their life or like really heavily drinking. So it's kind of the the thought and again, this is just like a random theory. I don't even know where I read it. Human combustion is still like no one knows. Um, but it's basically just a theory that like someone is so like their blood is so full of alcohol, like they get too close to a flame or something, whatever. And then like because usually with spontaneous combustion victims, it's like the torso area that's mostly been burned. Yeah. So it's like that's where all the fat is. So if you're obese, the fat acts as like a wick plus the alcohol. And I just I just think that's really fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so for that tangent. Yeah, very. <laughs> um, 
it seems very counterintuitive that like yeah. your hands and feet won't be as burned. Like I understand that fat fuel is a source mm-hmm. or like is a source of fuel, but like the bones in your hands and feet are so much smaller that you would mm-hmm. think it would take less heat just as a whole to burn it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's in the sense that when your body begins to burn, the heat and the fire just kind of targets midline. So there's not as much heat near the distal ends. Like I'm yeah, sure if you were sense. curled up in a ball, things would kind of be um, dispersed pretty evenly. But well, even when like when a body is burnt, this is another core memory from school that's haunted me since I've seen it. <laughs> oh, you the go, pugilistic you go into pose? pugilistic posture. Yeah. And so like your hands are all curled in and you're all like up and that's, yeah, I forget where I was going with that. Um, it just yeah, looks like really hand- eerie. <laughs> yeah. It's so scary. <laughs> your hands and feet are, I guess, away from the center of your body and there's nothing there to really keep the fire yeah. going. Yeah. So yeah, um, fat, proximity, some factors that play a part in it. And there's also some patterns that can be shown, that can show up on bones. And these are actually kind of predictable and science and research has like proven these predictable changes. And this is color changes, shrinkage, fracture patterns, and then a histological or cellular change. Not really going to go into the histological component because... The terms you can't really, yeah, you it's need very a, visual. It's very visual, a hundred percent, very visual. And even like me trying to discuss the terms, like osteons and all of those things, like you don't know what I'm saying unless you know. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, kind of coming back to the color that you were talking about earlier, journey is your bone actually starts off as like a yellowy brown color. Not the white that we are often familiar with. Um, But as temperatures rise and heat is applied over time, bone will change to a darker yellow-brown and then ultimately to a black. And this is because oils will burn away from the bone and organic matter carbonizes. And so as components continue to burn from the bone the bone goes like dark to light gray and then to a white. So you kind of go from like a light yellow to a brown, to a dark brown, to a black, to a light gray, then to a white. Right. If that makes sense. I'll put, I'll, I'll provide visuals. Visuals are always helpful. (laughs) It was previously believed though, that the color changes were caused by the temperatures themselves of the fire. So they thought, a fire had to hit a certain degree to cause a certain color change. But they realized this actually wasn't the case. And it was actually just indicative of the state of decomposition during the heating process and the type of, and like the amount of organic matter that was lost during the process, Hmm. which I thought was pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, Shrinkage is something that's seen. I've kind of touched on it too, but makes sense as components evaporate evaporate from the bone the entire structure will decrease in size and so the greatest decrease is actually seen in areas that are um, composed of cortical bone and this is the dense solid bone that surrounds the marrow space and so this is it's sorry go ahead no no, it surprises me that that's where we see the most decrease in size Mm because that's like the hard bone like Mm -hmm. that's really interesting yeah and so i guess like 
when it comes to that, you have more exposure for longer with the hard bone because the trabecular bone is like under it. So you get that dense, you see it quicker and more in that denseness. Um, and I guess with the trabecular bone, this is me just theorizing um, and using my brain could be very wrong, but because the trabecular bone is more spongy, it probably has more give to shrinkage because of the mesh like sponge like structure. Whereas cortical bone, because it's so dense, like any form of ev evaporation is going to just affect it in its entirety. Yeah, that makes sense. That's just me speculating. Someone can correct me on that. <laughs> I'm going to lock that answer in though. <laughs> um, with the cortical bones, these are seen in like the shafts of long bones. These areas face a greater possibility of shattering into smaller pieces when they go shrink undergo shrinkage because they don't have as much give. Whereas the trabecular bone, um, this is present at the end of your long bones, not as affected as much, and it generally retains its shape. So you wouldn't see as much shrinkage. I'll throw some terms at you though, but you wouldn't see as much shrink as much shrinkage at the epiphyses of long bones compared to the diathesis, which is like the shaft of the bone, essentially. Yeah. That was a tongue twister. Holy smoke. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Oh my gosh. <sighs> Sometimes I ponder, this is a side tangent. I ponder if I've got a speech impediment because of things like that. <laughs> like a lot of shushes and shuns. I'm like, why is this so difficult? Just get tired. I find that yeah. happens a lot when, like, my brain is moving faster than my yeah. mouth. So it's like, they're just, mm -hmm. they're not lining up. Words yeah. are hard. It happens, yeah. like, 80% of the time, too. My brain is just go, go, go. And then my mouth just cannot follow as fast. <laughs> um, back to burnt bones. A little side tangent. While shrinkage is seen during the entire burning process, it's when temperatures exceed 800 degrees that the most shrinkage is seen. And this can decrease bones up to 10 to 15% in size, which is a fair amount of shrinkage. Yeah, that's quite a bit. And this could make sense where if you see this amount of shrinkage, it's not surprising that estimations regarding age, sex, and stature can greatly be influenced. Yeah. Um. And I find it interesting with the temperature ranges, people like Anthony Kirkland, if they are trying to burn victims, whether it be to get rid of evidence or to um, like disfigure and impair identification, you need a really hot fire to do that. Mm -hmm. Like you can't just be setting up a bonfire and hoping for the best. Like these, some of these temperatures are like crematorium temperatures. And even then... Well yeah, you know? and it literally sounds like he just, like, pours lighter fluid on them and then throws a match on them and then just lets it happen. Like, yeah. it's not even, like, he's just more concerned about destroying, like, the immediate physical evidence versus, like, yeah. getting rid of who they are. Yeah. They're like, oh, I guess, I guess I'll do this. Hopefully it does something. And then... Yeah, because he's kind of like, they won't be able to prove that it's me because they can't find my DNA on there because their body's yeah. burnt. But it's like, dude, she's on your front steps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, like you gotta think really a little bit DNA. further than that, bro. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> oh, boy. And yeah, so of course, not all bone undergoes the same amount of shrinkage. Shrink shrinkage, another word that doesn't exist in my brain right now, um, because it's also dependent on 
other factors. And so these factors are the distribution of bone type, the temperature of exposure, the mineral content of bone, as well as the bone tissue. An interesting sex difference that's been recorded in research, and I got a little giggle out of this, and I got a giggle out of the class and Michelle as well when I gave my presentation, (laughs) but male bones tend to shrink a little bit more. So shrinkage is more often seen in men, on average, um, than female bones, which I thought was pretty interesting. (laughs) That's fun. Right? You know why? Um, They have apparently a higher percentage of bone minerals compared to women. I don't really know much more than that. It's kind of rude. Just take all the minerals. I know. Yeah, they get more minerals. Why do we get more body fat? It doesn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'd like to speak to the manager. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But because of this shrinkage, um, remains have incorrectly been identified as female due to size. When this wasn't taken into account. So there have been times where male bones have been burnt and then they weren't identified as male. Um, Fracturing and cracking can also be seen. And the flat bone of the cranial vault, as well as the ilium, which is like your pelvic bone, can exhibit cracking. Um, So I find it really interesting that certain bones kind of undergo specific patterns that makes Mm -hmm. sense like certain bones endure different things because of their structure um another really interesting thing that can appear with burned bones um with the cranial vault is that as in temp as temperatures increase the cranial vault appears to explode in some instances holy cow um it's not actually exploding which they've come to learn um it, they originally researchers when i say they um researchers originally thought that this was due to built up pressure so basically like just the steaming of your insides of your cranial vault well that's increase, my first thought too yeah would increase the pressure and they believed that the soft tissues would block the magnum foramen which is like the large hole at the base of your skull pretty much and then that would prevent the pressure from escaping so they right. thought that happened skull exploded in reality though it is a combination of external events plus the brittle mechanical properties of the altered bone and it just causes it to crack in a way that looks like it exploded so not as fun not as um, do you have a visual you put on the website of that because i really want to see it um i think so let me see yeah i'll find it right now but i just i'll check later I will also share um, my slideshow with you guys. I have like all okay. of the visuals with that. I probably should have sent that to you guys beforehand, but um, yeah, I got slides to go along with like all of this. Sick. So yeah, this exploding skull phenomenon can be seen. And it. in addition to this though, one of the most common fracture types seen in skulls is what's called delamination. And this is when the cortical bone, which is that dense solid bone, will shrink And then it separates from that trabecular bone underneath and it will actually curl and like peel up causing small little cracks. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Okay. Um, And in a lot of cases, the way that this pattern exhibits itself on the bone actually closely resembles injuries seen with like projectiles or blunt force trauma. So there can be Hmm. a lot of confusion 
um, when examining remains in determining whether blunt force trauma happened, projectile happened, or, I mean, I would like to think that they would notice that a bone had been burnt, but if it was just like the one bone and they had to figure it out, there could be some Well, I guess like they wouldn't be able to tell, like, is this an issue from the Mm. body being burnt or was this there before? Beforehand. Yeah. Another really cool thing that bones can exhibit is venting patterns. And this can happen to anti or perimortem fractures as well as sutures. So like your um, cranial sutures. And this is when fracture lines are outlined in black almost. So kind of like a charcoal, they're kind of charred. And this is from the pressured, whatever, the pressurized venting um, inside your body when water and organic matter evaporates. That's um, cool. Yeah. So it's not like, sorry, this is going to okay. sound gross, but it's all, it's like the, your insides are turning to soup. Yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then they're trying to escape the yeah. little pot lid. And then that in between is where you see the charcoalness. That's a great <laughs> analogy. Super, super gross. Super <laughs> gross. <laughs> Hopefully it helps you um, envision it. It does. Um, knowing, though, which way bones react to thermal damage. I know I did just spit a lot of information at you, but it is good to know the differences in how bones can react to thermal damage because it can provide a lot of insight into cases involving these burnt remains. So information about the source and the temperature of the fire can sometimes be determined. The damage can help in estimating the decomp stage of the body before being burned. Um, And since not all bone is completely burned and turned to ash, which we had talked about, remaining fragments can be helpful in giving some context to the case. It's difficult because Minimal fragments provide a lot more work to try and figure out, um, but it is that little bit of information that you may not have had with like a full crematorium cremation remain um, yeah. cremation remains. Um, and talking about like different bones having different patterns, I guess, or exist exhibiting different patterns, um, they react differently with heat. So over half the time, your maxilla and mandibular fragments. So these are like your jaw bones. They remain most of the time. They don't actually get burnt. And then portions of the temporal bone, your finger bones, your phalanges, your femur, and your humerus um, also remain. Which like seems weird because you've got big bones in there with your little bones. Yeah. Well, like I guess the phalanges, like yeah. they're furthest away. So I guess yeah. that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. But your femur and your humerus, like those are pretty big bones. Right? And, like, if your hip bones burn, like, what? yeah, hmm, that's odd. Yeah, same thing with, like, I'm surprised you find jawbone fragments of, yeah. like, anything else. Which is also unfortunate for people that try to hide evidence through burning because of, like, I don't I don't know if the teeth would still be intact, but, like, usually your teeth are attached to your jawbone. So yeah. <laughs> you have a better chance of identifying them. So exactly yeah. interesting. And even the uh, temporal bone, like what a random bone to just yeah, have left over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right? super weird. <laughs> and then, like in addition to those as well, you have your external occipital protuberance, which is the back of your skull, um, your acetabulum, which is your hip socket, and then the pubic symphysis. They are also found over half the time, apparently. How I random. thought your pubic symphysis was like cartilage. Am I wrong in that? It is, but the the bones that meet on each side. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But still, that is so weird. Right? Right? Yeah. And then, 
Yeah, it's really interesting because the bones, I guess, with the greater density and those well embedded into muscle are the ones that are frequently found, as well as the more distal bones that we've kind of talked about. Right. Now, kind of on the other side of that, the bones that are less likely to survive high temperatures are your zygomatics, which are like your cheekbones, uh, your frontal bone, your sacral vertebrae. I don't know why the sacral and not your other like vertebrae. Because but, the closer well, your sacral is your tailbone, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess like because like parts of your pelvis get found, like your hip joints, your sacrum, or well, synthesis, these are the ones all that. that don't survive high temperatures. Like this oh, is like the other oh. end of it. Okay, never mind. Yeah, yeah. never mind. That's sacrum, weird. Yeah, your sacrum's attached to your like hip bones, right? So mm-hmm. if your entire hip bone is gone, your sacrum's going to be gone too. But aspects of your hip bone don't go. Like your acetabulum? Not all of them, but like the upper parts do. Oh, the majority of them, yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. And I feel like it's by your butt, and a lot of women carry fat on their butts. So I feel yeah, like... that's very true. That makes That sense. could also play... Yeah, you don't have a lot of fat distribution along like your back and your neck compared to... Yeah, it's like low back and butt area, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense, actually, once I actually think about fat distribution. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's my theory. thinking of things. Yeah, <laughs> using our brains. Um, but then you also have your clavicles, which makes sense. They're just kind of there. And then supposed well, by your, your boobs car- too, right? Yeah. Um, and your carpals, which I was I was a little shocked by because if your phalanges are sticking around, yeah. your carpals are not though, which are like your wrist bones essentially. Like that's so there's fishy. like no fat in no. like generally like there is so little fat in there. It's just mm-hmm. it's just bone and joints and stuff like. And you would think That's, if those go, your fingers would go. Yeah, right? Yeah. right but there. unless, I guess, if your fingers are in a fist and your arms mm, are up like this, then I yeah. guess you're like, your wrists are you closer to pugilistic? the rest of your body. Do you always go into a pugilistic posture? Probably, um, because you're like I th- muscle, yeah. I think it would depend on the level of decomp. Because your bustles, your, your bustles, your muscles <laughs> need to be able to contract. Like they still need to have right. like a little bit of life in them to contract. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, life is the wrong word for that, but I hope you guys know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I get what yeah. you're putting down. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the end of my whole spiel. Like many aspects in forensics, though, the pattern seen in bones, um, sorry, the pattern seen in bone caused by thermal damage aren't always going to be the same. So it's not like you can rely on the same set of patterns for the same, every set of remains that you find. Um, And that being said, a lot of existing studies do vary in their findings um, on how body state affects burnt bones. So this was like the fleshed, defleshed, that whole kind of thing. And this is, again, we've talked about this in the past with our forensics, like faults in forensics is there's no great standardization method. Yeah. And like, Burning is so unpredictable and so uncontrollable that you can't have a controlled environment to test. You know, like you just can't really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And fire is just so dependent on many, many factors. And this ultimately influences its effect on bones. But given the general pattern seen, experts are able to kind of build their case bit by bit off of that. It's not an exact science, but it is one that they can just kind of loosely go off of. Yeah. They have enough information that they're not like completely guessing, but yeah, yeah, exactly. That makes sense. But yeah, 
you're welcome for listening to me talk for an hour. <laughs> well, I very much enjoyed it. I, I know you said you're getting a little sick of your voice, but I very yeah. much enjoyed listening to this topic. <laughs> it was cool. so cool. I'm so bummed I missed your actual like presentation in school. Oh, it was, I am not very proud of many of my presentations just because I like dissociate and I have forgotten many, many parts of that. But I, this was one that I really enjoyed. I love yeah. talking about burnt bones. It it's sounds so strange, interesting. But I was like, I really wanted to just burn one as a, like get a little chicken bone, do a little science experiment. Maybe yeah, I was just going to say like, you can get, you can get some pretty big bit pieces of pig from a yeah. butcher shop. Mm-hmm. Just going to be like, hey, what scraps do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I need, I need to create a science experiment. experiment. <laughs> I'm sure my neighbors in my apartment would love that. <laughs> yeah, maybe you want like a private property to conduct your experiments on or a uh, Michelle farm. <laughs> yeah, when you come to my True. farm, we can do some experimenting. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a weird noise I just made. <laughs> Allegedly, we'll do Allegedly. some experimenting yeah. for legal reasons or whatever. <laughs> do you still have your, your manure pile? Mm-hmm. Can we pilfer through that? You're not going to want to, and there's not going to well, be a lot left prior. over, but I'm sure we can. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes. I'll send you we can also put that into an experiment, too. Okay. Cool. Love that. For those Amazing. that don't know, Journey has a sheep farm. That's My family has a sheep farm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, their family <laughs> so has a sheep access farm. Not to <laughs> remains. We, there are access to sheep that have passed. Yes. Anyways. Sheep remains. Yeah. Yes. Non-human. That non- should be clarified. <laughs> For not- legal reasons. <laughs> I do not have access to human remains. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we've discovered um, that none of us have legal access to them, so don't don't go spreading those rumors. Um, yep. Thank you so much, Nicole, for telling us uh both our case study of Anthony Kirkland and all about burnt bones and how that related to his case today. I learned a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I do the same thing as Nicole. I kind of, I kind of just dissociate doing presentations or if it's within the same class. So I'm pretty sure Nicole, I was there for your presentation, but I don't really <laughs> remember it. Um, but yeah, that was really fascinating and I loved hearing about it. So thank you. And just on, I guess not so much of a lighter note. I have no idea what this case update is. Um, but just to kind of turn the tables a little bit, talk about a little a little bit something new. Journey, I know you have a fun fact or update mm-hmm. or I don't know what to call these things because we always do <laughs> yeah. different stuff. <laughs> I know. We need to find like a fun little name or like a forensics corner or something. Um, oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Right? But your fun uh, yeah. fact or your fun update or your fun new ex- <laughs> uh, discovery on, like forensic files i suppose we go like what? for our fun fact we're like oh it's our forensic file <laughs> would that be copywritten though yeah that's what i'm asking oh I don't okay know. maybe I don't know. we'll, we'll think about it. it if any of our listeners have any um suggestions please send them in yeah. okay so my update is that Gypsy Rose Blanchard has been released from prison. I don't know if you guys know who that is or if you've already heard about this. I've seen it in passing. I've seen it okay, in passing, yeah. yeah. I like um, the Basement Yard podcast, like, talked about it. And I had, like, I couldn't remember her name. And so they were like, oh, my gosh, like, Gypsy Rose is free. And I just thought they were talking about, like, just a random person off the street. Um, 
But yeah, so she was sentenced to 10 years in prison for getting her boyfriend to kill her mom in 2015. And she was released three years early for good behavior. And so her mom, Dee Dee, had suffered from Munchausen's by proxy and convinced everyone um, that her daughter suffered from like everything under the sun. Like Mm -hmm. they had her in a wheelchair taking so much medication, like so much stuff, even though Gypsy Rose was like perfectly healthy. Um, And so there's like a documentary about her story called Mommy Dead and Dearest. And there's a movie that's based on her story called Run. It is scary, um, but very, very well done. Um, So yeah, that's just my update is that she is out of prison. Do you want to know an even funnier addition to that update? Hmm. Apparently she is a guest judge on RuPaul's Drag Race. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I haven't heard that, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, I have so much to say. Like, I feel like we could do a whole other discussion on this. Like, I have so much to say about, like, I, not that her being released is a bad thing. Like, I know she was a victim in this. Mm -hmm. Like, she believed she had all of these diseases and disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just think we need, like, I just think she needs to go live a private life and change her name and just stop being in the spotlight. You know, like she like she posted on Instagram. She's like first selfie in freedom. And it got like 7.4 million likes. Wow. Like, yeah, yeah. that's a lot of eyes on you. Yeah. Especially after something that happens. It really is. Like, I I understand she's a victim and we need to support victims, but. It just feels like it's going really far because she did still hire her boyfriend to kill her own mother. The yeah. so it's, and she was pretty just, young at the at, by the sounds of it too. Yeah, mm-hmm. wasn't she? She was like under eighteen, she, wasn't she? I mean, yeah, she was I think 18. so. How many years did her? We should just do a whole other episode on her. Yeah, I did like, add her to our topic list. Okay. I'm pretty sure, <laughs> um, so okay. that we can yeah. Yeah, because um, I, I would love to talk about her case. Like, I, mm-hmm. that is, Munchausen by proxy is just really fascinating because mm-hmm. it's such like a scary and sad mental illness that yeah. directly affects not only the, the, mm-hmm. just the victim, but also like they, the victim has a victim. Like, it's, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that That's, was just my, my fun little update. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I am always open to talk about the, current happenings of gypsy rose's case they are yeah it's just really fascinating <laughs> i've never seen someone who we know for certain has like conducted a crime like this get so much positive attention and fame it, well, that's just well, kind of crazy to me but she was only sentenced to 10 years and i remember her like seeing her social media presence before all of this happened me too. Really? Then she was like gone. And then it was like, oh, she's in jail now. And then you're like, what happened? Oh my gosh. And I was like, oh, she's yeah. almost killed. And then now 10 years of, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Of- no, I didn't have social media then, I don't think. So I had no, um, yeah. like I wasn't following her at all. That's crazy. I, I didn't like follow her, but I had seen her like in passing on articles mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, Wild. Super yeah. wild. That is so crazy. Wow, but, the passing um, of time. That is crazy and terrifying. <laughs> I, really I feel like if, I feel like it has not been seven years since all of that went down. But no. here okay, we yeah. are. Um, <laughs> seven years later, we all uh, 
have graduated and we're not like I think that happened when we were in like middle school and high school and now we're all like multiple years out of university that's whack yeah 2015 Um, I was in grade 11 oh my gosh yeah that's crazy but anyways um thank you both so much um for sharing those topics with with us with our listeners with me um (laughs) i really enjoyed listening and discussing all of this today um and with that said i know we had briefly mentioned earlier in the episode but our next episode is going to be with dr meredith teese she is uh, a phd in forensic anthropology and she is going to be telling us all about her involvement in the dozier school for boys um excavation project um I won't get too much into it because I don't want to like spoil anything because it's it's it was a really fun episode to record and you should listen to it. So (laughs) with that being said, um, if you guys have enjoyed what we did today and want to check us out some more, uh, be sure to head over to our Instagram, YouTube or Facebook. They are all at what the forensics um or head to our website it's your one-stop shop for everything what the forensics that's just what the forensics.ca um you'll find the images that nicole was talking about um all of our sources for the episode we also post um media recommendations so like the the documentary and movie that journey just mentioned about gypsy rose those will be on there um and yeah it's just everything you could need from what the forensics and so with that being said The final thing is if you guys enjoyed and you are feeling generous and want to leave a review, we really love to read them and they also really help us out. So they'd be Mm -hmm. greatly appreciated. This has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. Bye. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm